today on Family Talk. Well, hello everyone. I'm James Dobson and this is Family Talk. And uh, I want to tell you that I have been looking forward to this particular broadcast for months. Uh, many of our listeners will uh, know why I felt that way about it because we're going to be talking about Louis Zamperini. He died uh, some uh, months ago and um, he's in heaven now, but his story lives on. And it was told in a fascinating book that many of you have read. It's called Unbroken. It was written by Laura Hillenbrand. And uh, I'm telling you, this is a page turner. I strongly recommend this book to our listeners uh, because you just start reading and you cannot put it down. The author also wrote the book Seabiscuit. In fact, Unbroken was number one New York Times bestseller. So this book has had a lot of coverage and many, many people have read it, including those in our listening audience. Um, but Louis Zamperini is also known now um, because of a movie that was released on Christmas Day. And uh, Shirley and I had the opportunity to go see it. Um, in fact, we went on New Year's Eve. And I'm telling you, that is, again, another movie that I hope you don't miss. Now, the reason we're talking about it today is because I had uh, wanted to interview Louis Zapparini. I have admired him. He is a national hero, and you'll see why in a moment. But um, we could never get our schedules together. Uh, he lived in the Los Angeles area, and, of course, we're in Colorado Springs. So uh, he was, by that time, well into his 90s, and he couldn't travel. So I had to go that way, and we just never got it done. That's one of my great regrets, that I didn't get to talk to this man because I admired him greatly. But we have... Uh, Somebody to represent him today, Luke Zamperini, is here. He is Louis's son, and uh, he's a well-known speaker in his own right. In fact, I was listening to the radio in Palm Desert, California, and heard Luke interviewed, and he was so effective, and he was talking about his dad, and I've asked him to come and be with us today to tell this remarkable story. Luke is married to Lisa, and she's here in the studio with us, but she's already told me she ain't speaking, so <laughs> she's over at the side here, but Lisa, I'm going to pull you in if I can get a chance. So we really need to know your story, too, because it is also dramatic. I have only known you all this one day, and I love you like uh, brother and sister already because you loved your dad, didn't you, Luke? Oh, yes. He was one inspirational man. And he died at 97. And uh, he had an opportunity to influence millions of people, didn't he? He certainly did. And th thank you for having us on the show, Dr. Dobson. It's a mm -hmm. pleasure to be here. Mm -hmm. Well, we've got a lot to talk about, in fact, more than we're going to get done today. 
and uh, maybe more than we can get done in about three weeks. So <laughs> I hope you're not planning to go home. <laughs> you and I have been talking about the stories that surround him and surround your family. And uh, they're really just kind of breathtaking because of what he went through. I call him a national treasure or a hero. You agree with that, don't you? Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, I have uh, a senatorial bipartisan resolution and a congressional uh, bipartisan resolution, both declaring Louis Amprey to be a national hero. So we're doing better than the president at this point. You were very close to him, weren't you? Uh, yes, I was very close to my father. I loved being with him. Uh, I loved taking him places. I used to uh, take him on his speaking engagements and listen to him tell his story over and over and over again, and I never got tired of hearing it. Frequently, when you know the backstory of heroes, uh, there's more to it than meets the eye. And if you knew all the facts, you might be a little disappointed. In his case, it's not a disappointment. Uh, the way he lived his life and his love for Jesus Christ in the latter years of his life, um, and many as a matter of fact, even though he was not a Christian in his younger years, it is as impressive as we think it is, wasn't it? Well, yes. And as a matter of fact, the less savory portions of his story are are the things that, that built his experience to get him to the point where he did become a yes. Christian. Well, he was kind of a rascal when he was a little kid. The, the book Unbroken tells us more than the movie did. But he really was a handful, wasn't he? Well, yes. Uh, Laura's first chapter in the book is called The One Boy Insurgency. And, yes, he was a terror to his community of Torrance, California. Uh -huh. So Louis began smoking when he was five years old. Uh, he was so quick on his feet that he used to steal alcohol from bootleggers in the area. And uh, he was a very resourceful guy when it came to uh, breaking the law. In those days in Torrance, there was no air conditioning. So on a hot summer day, they would, uh, instead of closing the doors to a business, they would pull these iron gates shut in front of it and let the air through the iron gates. Well, on Sundays when everybody was in church, Louis would go get his fishing rod and go down the main street in Torrance, and he'd fish through these iron gates and snag cigarettes and candies and whatever else that he could. Uh, and that way he was able to, you know, steal from these stores without actually going inside the store. Why was he like that? that was, was that just his temperament? Did he have a tough home life? What, what made him like that? Well, he was inherently a defiant person. You know, even when he was punished, he never cried. Uh, he had a loving family. His uh, mother and father, being Italian immigrants, were good parents. He had uh, a brother and two sisters. Yet Louis was just incorrigible. Uh, he was smart and could figure out ways to get what he wanted. I think it was the attention that he was getting from when he got caught. And uh, the parents had no idea. Your grandparents, by the way, had no idea what to do with him. They didn't. As a matter of fact, uh, it was my Uncle Pete who finally figured out that if he could channel Louis's energies into sports, he might be able to keep him from going to jail. Mm -hmm. And so he got together with the chief of police uh, in Torrance, California, and got the chief of police to convince the school principal to allow Louis to participate in sports, even though he didn't have the grades 
uh, to do so, and even though he was constantly in trouble in school. And he turned out to be a great athlete. He was a runner. He did. He went into, uh, you know, the police chief said, well, I... You know, since we've been chasing him all over town all these years, I suggest running would be a good uh, sport for him. Uh, and so he went out for distance running at Torrance High School. Mm. And was fast. He was. Uh, his event was the mile. Even though he ran half miles and two miles in cross country, the mile is what he ran. And being a high school student at Torrance High, he set the national collegiate record for the mile at 4 minutes, uh, 21 seconds and change. That was held for 19 years. That may not sound fast now, but it was faster than anybody in the world at the time. Pretty darn fast. The world record still hadn't broken the four-minute mile. and It was, I forget what the mile record was at the time, but when my dad finally got into college, he set the national collegiate record at four minutes, 8.3 seconds. At? At USC. University of Southern <laughs> California. And that record right. held for 14 years. Mm. Well, he went on to win many honors in track, most of it, as you say, in the mile run. But, uh, he actually ran the 5,000-yard a distance in the Olympics of 1936 when Jesse Owens was the sensation. Yeah, that's right. The positions that were open for the mile run or the 1,500-meter run in the Olympic team was already taken up. And so my uncle enrolled uh, my father for the 5,000-meter run, and he'd never run it before. The second time he ran the 5,000 meters, he actually tied the world record holder, Don Lash, and got himself onto the U.S. Olympic team in 1936. Hmm. 1936 was the year that Adolf Hitler made a political thing out of the Olympics. And, of course, Jesse Owens was black, and uh, Hitler hated any races other than the Aryan race, which he saw as representing Germany. We remember those Olympics because of the prelude to World War II. Uh, Shirley and I have been to Berlin, and we went to that stadium, and I've stood in the place where uh, Adolf Hitler sat, and of course the press and all the other follow-all that went along with that Olympics uh, took place there in that year. In fact, four years later, your dad qualified for the Olympics in Japan. The Tokyo Olympics of 1940 were canceled because of World War II. That was the Olympics that my father was hoping to be able to uh, get a gold medal in. And at that Olympics, was his plan was to finally break the four-minute mile. Uh, but World War II happened instead. Uh, in 1936, you know, he made the team uh, running the 5,000 meters. Interestingly enough, uh, his roommate in the Olympic Village in Germany was Jesse Owens and Mac Robinson, the brother of Jackie Robinson. Uh, they were tasked at keeping the uh, young Zamperini out of trouble, which they did to some extent. But... After he ran his final heat of the 5,000 meters, a heat where he actually set a record for the very last lap in that 5,000 meters at 56 seconds. Uh, that was so fast that it drew uh, the attention of Adolf Hitler, who then summoned him to the podium, which you were talking about, because yeah. he wanted to meet the boy with the fast finish. So he, they, they met, uh, they shook hands briefly, and it was interesting because 
Hitler refused to shake Jesse Owens' hand, but he shook yeah. Jesse's roommate's hand instead. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no great honor in that. <laughs> no, none at all. Uh, but your dad stole a flag, uh, a swastika flag, with the black and red colors. Uh, yes, after his heat, uh, he went and sampled some of the uh, automats that they had in the Olympic Village. And you could put a couple of Fennig in the machine, and that would come a liter of beer. So he had a couple of liters of beer and uh, went wandering through the city, and he found himself in front of the Reich Chancellery building. And there were all these uh, Nazi swastikas on flagpoles hanging off the front of the building. And he decided that he really wanted to have one of those as a souvenir. So there were guards walking to and fro in front of the, the building. And he figured his timing would be correct. That it, just as those guards passed each other, that he would take a dash for the building and get up the side of it and grab a flag and be gone before they, they knew what happened. Of course, he got up the side of the building and the flag was a little higher than he thought it would be. So it took him a little longer to get a hold of it. But when he did... They took a shot at him. Yeah, he dropped to the ground with his flag in his hands and started running. And the guards saw him and they were yelling, Haltensee, Haltensee. And finally, uh, he believed he heard uh, the crack of a, of a rifle, you know, the shot in the air to make him stop. And he, and he stopped. <clears throat> and what happened to him? They let him go? Well, they uh, they collared him and then they saw his American Olympic insignia on his uniform uh, and they started to question him as to why he had taken the flag and uh, he just charmed them and said it was because he wanted a souvenir of the wonderful time he had in this most beautiful of countries. And so they, they held him in place there for a while. They went back into the building and got permission uh, to give him the flag. And, and he's, uh, we still have that flag. It's in the Zamperini Airfield in Torrance, California, on display with some of his other war memorabilia. Now, the winds of war, World War II, were blowing at that time. And, uh, and we know now what occurred shortly after that. But your dad went into the, uh, there wasn't an Air Force, but the Army Air Force. Yes, there was the Army Air Force uh, that later became the Air Force. Uh, and my dad volunteered to go into the Army Air Force uh, before Pearl Harbor. A lot of men were uh, seeing the, the winds of war coming, and in support of their country, they started volunteering before there even was a draft. Uh, and so he went into the Army Air Force, and uh, he washed out as a pilot but um, he was very mechanically minded and did very well with the Norden bomb site. So they turned him into a bombardier on a B-24 Liberator. Uh, mm-hmm. And then he served in the Pacific Theater being based on Oahu. He um, went on several uh, bombing raids, one of which was uh, Wake Island. Another one was the Nauru raid, which is, of course, dramatized at the beginning of the film Unbroken. And then uh, it was a subsequent mission he went on that was actually a rescue mission looking for a downed B-25, you know, about 200 miles from Palmyra Island around the Central Pacific. It was a borrowed yeah, the airplane. the war with Japan was well underway. Oh, well underway, then, yes. And Pearl Harbor had occurred. It had occurred. And this was – Pearl Harbor happened uh, December 7th, 1941. And this was May 1943 when he went on this reconnaissance mission. They were flying at just under 1,000 feet below the cloud cover looking to see if they could find any wreckage or any survivors of this B-25 that had uh, ditched there. 
when the airplane that they were using, this B-24, was a borrowed plane, and it had engine problems. And first, the number one engine on the left side of the plane went out, and then eventually the number two engine went out, and at, you know, at under 1,000 feet, this plane just cartwheeled straight into the ocean, uh, landing on its left side, and just blew to pieces. Now, my father, uh, to brace for the crash, he got back by the waist gunner area, and he had a rubber life raft, you know, uninflated. Uh, he was holding it in his arms, and when the plane hit the water, it shoved him under the waist gunner machine gun tripod. And so he was stuck under this tripod with this raft in his stomach. And then the tail of the airplane sheared off, and all the cables that ran from the flight deck back to the rudder and the tail, they coiled around that tripod. Now he was entombed in this tripod with all these wires holding him in there, and he was unable to free himself. And the plane began to sink. And uh, he was really good at holding his breath for a long time. He timed himself at being able to hold his breath uh, underwater for three minutes and 45 seconds. And so he held his breath. The and great the plane, athlete yes. was in shape because he had expected uh, to go to the Olympics uh, in 1940. This was 1943, but mm -hmm. he was still in good shape. Still in great shape. As a matter of fact, he ran a four-minute, 12-second mile just the day before this plane crash. So now he's sinking, unable to free himself. And the last thing he remembered saying to himself was, God, help me. And then he blanked out. He said it felt like a sledgehammer had hit him in the head, and he was out cold. Then he comes to, and he thinks that this must be the afterlife. But he had a sensation of floating. He was completely freed from this entombment that he had and knew that he was floating upward in the aircraft, although it was so deep now that it was dark and he couldn't see. And what happened was his USC ring had caught on to the waist gunner window. And it caught on there, and there was so much force for the plane sinking and his own buoyancy trying to take him up that it cut through his skin all the way to the bone on his ring finger. So then he realized that he was in the waist gunner window, and he pulled himself out and then shot to the surface. And for the rest of his life, he could never figure out how he got freed in that aircraft. It, it had to have been a miracle. As a matter of fact, he was convinced that he had a guardian angel that had freed him from that. And whenever he would pray, he would put a good word in for that guardian angel, who he named Victor for mm -hmm. victory. Mm -hmm. Well, it's my memory from reading that uh, there were 11 of his airmen buddies that were killed in that uh, crash. Is that right? That's correct. There was 11 men on the crew. Uh, all died except for three. My dad, uh, the pilot, uh, Russell Phillips, and the tail gunner, Francis McNamara. They survived the crash. Um, my dad got to the surface. Uh, the ocean was on fire. Uh, you know, he was throwing up all the water and blood and, and hydraulic fluid that he was inhaling as he was going up to the surface. He saw the two other survivors clinging to a piece of wreckage and blood just shooting out of the pilot's head. Uh, and he turned around and looked elsewhere, and he saw a life raft floating away from the wreckage. And he started swimming for the life raft, and he realized he couldn't catch it because the, the current was taking it away faster than he could swim. And as he turned around to look back at the pilot one more time, he saw that there was a 100-foot cord attached to this life raft that was going by his face. 
And he was able to grab the last two feet of that cord and able to retrieve the raft. So he got on that raft and— You kind of get the feeling the Lord had something for him to do. Yeah, I think so. It was pretty miraculous. So he was able to catch another raft and tie them together and come back and pick up the other two survivors. That began a 47-day odyssey in the middle of the Pacific well, you, Ocean. You said that uh, without a lot of emphasis. 47 days on a raft with no, did they have no water? They had a little bit of food, didn't they? They had what was on this raft. Now, first thing he did once he stopped the bleeding on the pilot's head was he took inventory of what was in these two rafts. And uh, he used to joke to me that he was certain that those rafts had to have been provisioned by the Japanese Navy because there was nothing in there for this, these Americans to survive mm-hmm. on. There, was, there were uh, six chocolate bars and three tins of water, and each tin was about 12 ounces. So there really wasn't much there, uh, but it was enough for three men to survive on for a week. The very first night, the tail gunner panicked and ate all the the provisions. He ate all those chocolate bars. And so there was nothing for my father and the pilot, Russell Phillips. Um, They thought that they would be rescued pretty uh, soon, but uh, it just didn't happen. So day after day after day, they finally figured out that they were drifting westward. When they finally saw an airplane... Uh, that was far to the east of them, and that was in the flight lanes between Hawaii and Palmyra Island. So they realized they had drifted west, uh, and they were continuing to drift west, and they figured that eventually they would drift into probably the Gilbert or Marshall Islands in the western Pacific. Of course, the problem was those islands were uh, under the control of the Japanese Navy at that time. So they were not making any progress in finding land where they could have uh, survived. And uh, and now they're into the second week, the third week, and fourth. And what happened to the three men? Well, they had no more food to eat. So uh, fortunately, one day, an albatross landed on the raft. It's a bird. It's a bird. It's a pretty big bird. And so my dad grabbed it by its feet, and they broke its neck, and they cut it open to eat it. And, of course, this was the first of three albatrosses that they had caught over their seven-week journey. And they tried to eat this one. They they just couldn't do it. It was raw bird meat. It was just, you know, terrible. The second one that they caught several weeks later, uh, they were able to choke it down. The third one uh, that they caught... Uh, he, he told me it tasted like a hot fudge Sunday to him. They were so hungry at that point. Mm-hmm. So he, they had three birds, uh, half a dozen small fish, and they'd also caught two sharks and ate uh, what they could of those during their journey. We're going to have to pick up this story next time. Okay. And uh, we've been talking to Luke Zamperini, and his wife Lisa is sitting here. Uh, these are good, godly people, and... I have learned to love them already, and uh, we're just going to have to ask you to stay with us, and we will continue to tell your story because this is just the beginning. What happened from then to the end of the war uh, is the main aspect of this story that is told in the movie 
and uh, it will get your attention, I tell you. It'll move you. Uh, thank you for being with us today, Lisa. Thank you thank and you. your silence for being with us. <laughs> and we will talk to you both uh, next time. Thanks for being okay. here. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Well, I'm uh, really looking forward to tomorrow's program, and I really do hope that those who are tuned in today will join us again next time for part two of Louis Zamperini's story. Uh, if you'd like more information about Louis Zamperini or his uh, book that was written right before he died, the title of it is Don't Give Up, Don't Give In. I do hope you'll visit our website, drjamesdobson.org, or just call us at 877-732-6825. Thank you for joining us today, and uh, we hope you'll be with us again next time for part two of our interview with Luke and Lisa Zamperini on the next edition of Family Talk. Family Talk is not associated with Focus on the Family. Hello everyone, Dr. Meg Meeker here for Family Talk. Where can you go to receive support and advice for you and your family? Family Talk interacts with millions of people every day with the inspiring advice and tips from Dr. James Dobson on what matters to you the most. Whether it's marriage or parenting, you can be sure our Facebook page will keep you updated with how your family can succeed. Join us each day for the latest broadcast, resources, and inspiration. Nowhere else can you hear a direct thought of the day from Dr. Dobson, as well as a special thought and conversation starter before you say goodnight. You can be sure that every post on our page is created with you and your family in mind. So please take the time to visit us and become part of our online community at facebook.com slash Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk. That's facebook.com slash Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk.